Okay, come on up. Come up here and sit if you want to. <laughs> Just don't mess with my notes. <laughs> Are you okay, Pat? You had a little... I tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you like I tell my mother. You're not allowed to get on the chairs and ladders and all. We have a... I have a list with my mother, you know, so whenever I go to see her, she has a list for me of things that need doing that she can't get to, you know, so just make me a list and I'll do it, but don't get up there and try to do it yourself. It's not worth it. You know, three weeks in the hospital to change a light bulb. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 13. The word of the Lord says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your for the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks for him. He is the vine, and we are the branches. He will always be the vine, and we will never be more than branches. We are happy to take our life from him, to have him as a source of our strength, and as we come to you this morning, we realize afresh that we can do nothing without you, Lord. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watch over the city, the watchmen labor in vain. And so we would not pretend to do anything without you, Lord. We invoke your name. We pray for your help, for your guidance, for your strength. And as we look into your word now, we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in us and that we might be useful to you to reach out to other people. We commit ourselves and, and the church and our families to you and ask for your guidance and blessing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> now, this passage that we have before us this morning is, going, is leading us into the subject of holiness, personal Holiness. We're not talking about uh, positional holiness. Position is what you have in Christ. It's what you're given when you become a believer. And you don't earn it. It's by grace. Okay, so our position is we are saints. Saints is one of those words in the New Testament. We have uh, several different words that are interchangeable that all refer to people who are Christians. One of them is brethren, one of them is disciples, one of them is saints, another is believers, another is Christians. All of these words refer to the same group of people. And so with each one of these words, the Lord is emphasizing something different. When you came into the family of God, you were made a saint at that moment. Saints are not on walls. Saints are not in cathedrals in alcoves where people light candles to them. When you 
came into the family of God, you were made a brother or sister in Christ with every other person in that, at that moment, you became a member of the household of God. Ephesians 2 talks about that. You were brought into the family. And now the Lord wants us to take the position that he's given us and put it into practice. You're made a saint, act like a saint, be holy. That's what we're going to look at today. You are made a brother, a sister. You are made a member of the family of God. Okay, now, brotherly love. Treat the people who are in the family like your family members. Love them, care for them. When he says, for example, in 1 John 3, 16, if you see your, your brother in need and close up your heart against him, how does the love of God dwell in you? That's just one of the examples of the application of brotherly love. We're made disciples. The moment, discipleship is not something you decide whether later on whether you want to be more committed to the Lord and be a disciple or not. You became a disciple the moment you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you trusted in him, you were given that position to be a disciple of the Lord. Now, to put it into practice, a disciple is a learner. So this is what we're doing. We're observing the Lord and learning from him through his word. We allow our lives to be molded and changed by him. He's the master. We are not the masters. We're not in Christianity to protect our personality and our private career plans and all of that. What we're trying to do is look at and follow the one who said, follow me. Every time he called him, he didn't say, believe things about me. He said, follow me follow me. And to follow someone, you have to look at them. You have to observe them. So we're disciples. We're, we're brethren. We're saints. We're Christians. We follow the Christ. Christ from the word Christos. It means the anointed or the Messiah. He's our Messiah. So we don't have to be Jews to have the Messiah. We get into the blessing from coming in from the outside like so many other people uh, over the course of history who have come in to these great blessings without having been part of that original family, that original people of God. Look at Ruth. She was a Moabitess. You know, and I'm sure if we stop, we could all name stories like that that remind us that God has a place in his family for us. But we have the blessing of having the great deliverer as our king. That, because that word anointed also means king. And in, let me see, in Colossians 1.15, he says, We have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Okay, well, if he's the king, and he is, or the Lord, you can't really make Jesus the Lord of your life because God has already done that. Now, I know what we mean when we say it. We're not going to quibble about words, okay? What we mean is, I recognize his authority and I submit myself to it. But God has already made him Lord. He is that. It's just a question of how we relate to it and what we do with it. That's part of what it means to be Christian. Although today, the word Christian means practically nothing. It means uh, non-Muslim or non-Buddhist or... In some cases, it means maybe American people. So, you know, in Morocco, when you ask people, are you, um, are you a Muslim? They answer, I'm Moroccan. It means it's taken for granted. I was born in Morocco. I just, I'm, that's what Moroccans are. And some people think Americans are Christians. Well, they thought that more before than they do today. 
But it's still around this idea, you know, and all the presidents have been Christians and all the coaches of football teams have been Christians and everybody's a Christian. Well, okay, you believe that if you want to. That makes you feel better. Believers. The word believe means to trust. To trust. It doesn't just mean to know things or to be intellectually in agreement with things. It means to trust, to confide in. You remember the famous story? I know it's been told a thousand times. The man, <clears throat> Blondin, who was a acrobat who walked across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And uh, after several times going across, and the, he was competing with another man who was doing the same kind of things. And so one would go across um, and taking a plate and eat his lunch out there, and another one would do something else. And they were, uh, you know, just trying to see who could draw the biggest crowd. Well, this fellow went across with a wheelbarrow. And when he got to the other side, his assistant, who's uh, uh, maintaining the tension on the wire over there, he's asking the people, and he said, who believes that I can take them across in this wheelbarrow? And they said, oh, yeah, we believe it. So he points to several people and says, hop in. No, no, nobody's going to get in. <laughs> See, that's the difference between believing something intellectually and trusting. And if all that you have as a, as a professed Christian is you believe intellectually that Jesus Christ came to the earth, died, and rose again, if you just believe that intellectually but you're not trusting in him, then you're not there yet. You're not there yet. Because Christianity is not just an intellectual thing. We do have to know. We need some information. The gospel is our information. But the gospel calls us to trust in the Lord. So when a person says they are a believer, what they're really saying is not just that they agree that that information is correct, but that they trust in the Lord. They're trusting him. Who are you trusting for the forgiveness of your sins? Who are you trusting? Careful now. Who are you trusting to guide your life on a day-by-day -day basis? Who are you trusting to care for you? Is it the same one you said you trusted for the, the get-out-of-hell free card? Because that's all a lot of people think Jesus Christ is. You know, he's like that get-out-of-jail free card in Monopoly. You get that and you stick it in your pocket and then you go on and live your life the way you want to. But that is not the life of faith. The life of faith is a constant crisis of trust in the Lord, and he can be trusted for everything. So we have these words, okay? These are words that describe believers, and, and they're interchangeable, but each one of them has a message for us. But the word we want to think about today is the word holy, be holy. Come with me to 1 Timothy 5, <clears throat> 1 Timothy 5. Verse 14, 1 Timothy 5, 14. Yeah, this is the Apostle Paul writing, but he is inspired. Remember, we don't believe in this baloney about Paulisms. And that in the writings of the Apostle Paul, there are simply uh, personal things and cultural things and all of that. No, no, this is the inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit moved him to write the things he wrote and chose the word. So when he says in verse 14, I will or I desire, that's an inspired desire. 
That's expressed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is worthy of our respect. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. <clears throat> now, that word adversary, excuse me, the word uh, occasion is a military word. It really means a base of operations. Don't give the adversary a base of operations in your house. Now he's speaking here, uh, chapter 5 is a chapter about the care of widows, primarily, and about, the, and about the will of the Lord for younger women. And here he says the younger women should marry, bear children, Guide the house and not give occasion. Don't give a base of operations to the devil. <clears throat> My sisters in Christ, your role and the importance of your behavior in the home is brought out very clearly here. That the Lord intends for you to be like those watchmen on the wall taking care. We have a terrible enemy and we're going to talk about our enemies this morning. The enemies of holiness. God says be holy, but there's others who are saying don't be holy. And you have a tremendous key role in the raising of your children and the forming of your home and the raising of your grandchildren because there's some grandparents here today too. You have an influence so that that place <clears throat> where they are growing, where they're living, is not a base of operations for the devil. It's not a place, like we said last night, build the wall well in front of your house so that that's not going to be the place where the enemy gets in. And here he's speaking about the important role that the women have in keeping the adversary out. A woman can set the tone and the atmosphere for her home. She's the one who has the most influence in, most, in the majority of the cases over the children because she spends more time with them than anyone else. And so really, in a, in a very real way, what he's saying here is she can set the pace and the tone and the atmosphere in which these children are raised. And this is important because back in chapter 2, when you come to the end of chapter 2, it says in verse 15, Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, charity, and holiness with sobriety. What are they talking about here? They're talking about how her children grow, and that leads right up into chapter 3, which is the elders. It's not a coincidence. She has an impact on these children she's raising, and some of them are going to grow up to be men who are shepherding the church of God. And so here... Once again, we see how important it is that a spiritual woman, a Christian woman, be careful about the atmosphere of her home, about the priorities and the way her home life is carried on. Don't give any occasion. Don't give a base of operations to the devil. Don't let him have a place from where he can set up camp and operations in your house, among your family, as much as within you lies. Okay, we have uh, a parallel between what we're looking at in Nehemiah and the things that are before us this morning. We're going to think about holiness and 
using this verse in 1 Timothy, we want to remember how important your personal role is in this. Nehemiah, when he was trying to do the work and build the wall, he had three main enemies. There were others who joined in with him. There was Sambalat and Tobiah, and then there was Jeshem, the, the Arab, who was with them. And then there were other people, the Ashdodites and other people who joined in. But those were the three main ones, the three musketeers who were working together against the people of Israel. We have enemies who oppose what the Lord says to us here in 1, Timothy, in 1 Peter 1. Be holy, for I am holy. And they are determined that we are not going to be holy. And just like the three enemies of Nehemiah, there are three enemies that we face every single day. The first one is the devil. The first one is the devil. The Lord says, be holy. And he works as hard as he can to make that, as Bill McDonald used to say, the forgotten command. It's a command that the Lord has given us. Be holy. He wants us to forget it. He wants us to ignore it. He wants us to explain it away. Anything, as long as we don't be holy. Why? Because to be holy means to be like God. To be godly or godlike. Not godlike in the sense of being gods and having powers and all of this. But that our character and our behavior be molded into that which is pleasing to God and represents Him. When you are merciful, when you are kind and loving to your enemies, then the Lord said in Luke chapter 6, you'll be like your Father who is in heaven. You will be children of your Father who is in heaven. It means you will be seen to be children of your Father who are in heaven. They'll recognize that you're behaving like God. Well, this is exactly what we're told to do. The devil doesn't want us to do that. Did you know that there are churches, <clears throat> evangelical churches, that don't believe in the existence of a personal devil? It's incredible. And I'm sure he's happy for them to believe that because it allows him to carry on his operations without having the finger pointed at him. It can be pointed at a thousand other things. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of the world, of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's the devil. The prince of the power of the air. A spirit working in the children of disobedience. This is where he works. He sets up his base of operations. He has liberty to move and to do as he pleases in those who don't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've been delivered from that. But it doesn't mean that he's not still our adversary. But he doesn't, he doesn't possess and inhabit and rule over Christians like he did over the unsaved. Our body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean there isn't a spiritual conflict but it's very clear who lives in a Christian as opposed to who lives in and moves in an unbeliever. Okay, so he's a spirit working in people. If you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to Ezekiel 28 and to Isaiah 14, and you can see the history of this being who's called Lucifer who fell, who was thrown out of heaven because he wanted, he said, I will go up, I will ascend, I will be like the Most High. He wasn't happy to be what God had made him, 
son of the morning. He wanted to go up and, and take God's place. He wanted to be number one. He wanted to climb the corporate ladder and take the CEO position to speak in Californese. So he's thrown out, and ever since that happened, he's the, the determined and fierce enemy of God and of anyone who wants to follow him. He's the master psychologist. He has case files, we could say, on the testing of humans under every conceivable condition and in every conceivable situation in any age, financial situation, men, women, children, doesn't matter, rich, poor, educated, ignorant, doesn't matter. He's tested the human race in every possible situation and condition since the beginning. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, but he's got all that on file. And he has a lot of helpers. He's a powerful being. After our Lord and the mighty angels that serve him, he's the next most powerful being in the universe. We don't joke about Satan. I know Billy Sunday, an old preacher, he used to say he used to fight with the devil when he was preaching and th in the you know uh, air boxing and shadow boxing and that sort of thing. And another man who said he was going to kick him off the stage, you know, and kick the devil out of the church. And people think of the devil in this way. Somebody running around in a suit of red pajamas, you know, with horns and a pointy tail. But he's not that way. Second Corinthians says he's an angel of light. And his ministers, his servants, appear as ministers of righteousness. They don't come with pitchforks. They come with Bibles. Ministers of righteousness. And this is why in this great spiritual conflict against this being, we are required by the Lord to be a discerning people, to know how to judge righteous judgment, to have discernment. That's what that word means, to judge. To have discernment between good and evil, Hebrews 5 says. Have your senses sharpened, and matured to be able to discern between good and evil, to know what's right and what isn't right. Well, this is where he works all the time. First Peter 5, 8 calls him your adversary, the devil. Your adversary. That's what the word Satan means, adversary. The word devil, who knows what the word devil means? comes from the word diablos, but what does it mean? <clears throat> In Titus 2, I'll show it to you. In Titus 2, verse 3, the aged or the older women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, 
teachers of good things. That word false accusers, or in some versions, slanderers, that's the word in Greek, that's the word diabolos. That they don't be devils. That's what that word literally is. Because the word devil means accuser or slanderer. We have that in Revelation 12, don't we? The accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused them before God day and night. That's his job. So don't do the devil's job. Let him do his job. Don't be accusing the brethren day and night. He's our adversary, Satan. He's the accuser, devil, and there are a lot of other words. Uh, John 8, 44, we have him described there by our Lord. In John 8, 44... You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do, or the desires of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He's not going to tell the truth. I think it was Bill McDonald who used to say, the devil will take a gallon of truth to mix in a teaspoonful of error. Just mix it in there. A gallon of fresh water, a teaspoonful of poison. You going to drink that now? Be careful. Because this is the way he works. First, he lowers your defenses by, by saying things the way you're used to hearing them and appearing to be orthodox. And then he begins to bring in, little by little, his agenda. And this is the way false teachers work. And this is why when we study the scriptures, we do it with this open and we do it like the Bereans who search the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I tell people when I travel into other countries, don't, don't ever go around saying, well, uh, Brother Carlos said this or that. You know, if it's in here, then it's because God said it. If it's in here, and if it isn't, and it doesn't matter who said it, they're wrong. This is what matters. We don't believe things because a person says them. We believe him because God says him. We want to see it, chapter and verse. We want to see what it says and know what the word of God says. And this is why we're always harping on this. You need to be reading the Bible. You need to be studying the scriptures. You need to know the word of God. And it's good when, you're, when we're meeting together and studying to take it down, to write, to take notes, to, and go check it up, check it out, check out the verses, check out the text, make sure that what they're saying squares up with what the Word of God says. This is the way we prevent error and deception from creeping in. And so he says here, your adversary the devil is the father of lies. And when it calls him a murderer, that word really means manslayer or, or manhunter. That's what he was doing in Genesis. He was hunting them down to kill them because they were made in the image and likeness of God and he didn't like that. And if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we become instantly, the moment we are saved, we become instantly the enemies of the devil. You got into a conflict when you got saved. There's a great war going on in the spiritual realm, and you're right in the middle of it. And you don't have to choose sides, brother, sister. You don't have to choose sides. You already chose them. When you chose the Lord, that's the side you're on. And we used to sing great old hymns like that. I don't know if you know these hymns. Uh, Who is on the Lord's side? Hymns like that, they're wonderful. 
to remind us of that position. 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15. Uh, maybe we should read 13 also. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their works. This is the way he appears. And this is the way his workers appear. False apostles, deceitful workers, passing themselves off to be apostles of Christ. And in the Pentecostal world, and even in the Mormon world, they call their leaders often apostles. As if they, there were still apostles with that authority walking the earth. Well, this is one of the problems we have. He likes to operate that way. He likes to present himself, and in Spain we have this often where people say they've seen visions of angels. Well, he's transformed into an angel of light. And when people begin to talk, when they leave the world of the scriptures and what the word of God says, because here it says the same thing to all of us. It's all written down to read and study and examine and know what God has said. And when they leave the objective world and they go off into the subjective world of dreams and visions and feelings and voices, there's no standard. There's no way to interpret that. And it's every man for himself. So that's, this is why we stick to the word of God. Everything that God has to say to me, he said it. He put it in writing. It's here in this book. And this does not mean that God cannot lead us, that he cannot intervene in our lives, but I want you to understand what I mean when I say God has shut himself up to this book. There's no new revelation. So when people say, the Lord told me, or the Lord revealed to me, well, it depends on who it is. It, it, sometimes we say it, um, and I know what we mean. We mean, I came to understand this. It was like a light came on and suddenly I understood this. Or the Lord really impressed upon my thoughts a certain verse or it came, it came to me so clearly. Well, that's not really a revelation. That's what we call illumination. Illumination. He opened the eyes of my understanding. Revelation is when God takes something unknown to reveal, to pull the curtain back, to expose it, to manifest it. He takes something unknown and he makes it known. He makes it visible. He makes it manifest. That's revelation. Inspiration is when he moves in a person so that what they say or write is exactly what he is thinking and saying. So that the words that appear on the page or that come out are in that very moment the very words that God desires to communicate. Not the general idea. This is why it's important in Bible study to have a good translation of the Bible and not just a paraphrase. Paraphrases are nice to read. And it's a good place sometimes for people to start who have no experience with the Bible or knowledge of the Bible at all. But at some point, you have to get into a translation. It's a word-for-word -word translation, not the general thought 
and not what some of the modern translations call dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence is where you take what they said and instead of saying it word for word like they said it, you just you boil that down in your mind to what is the thought they're communicating here and then you just write that however or say it however you want to. Dynamic equivalence might be okay for getting the general idea. But since we know that God has inspired this book, he has chosen these words, then it is important for us as students of the scripture to have a version of the Bible that is a word-for-word -word translation from those original texts that were written by the holy men of God. This is very important. The devil is working in this realm of deceit, and he wants to turn us away and confuse us regarding the word of God. In Revelation chapter 12, he's called a dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver, the one who deceived the whole world, the accuser of the brethren. These are all titles of his. He's deceived the whole world. False religion, false doctrine, even false love, false brethren. There's so many counterfeits. So many. It's so important to be anchored to the word of God and to be walking in daily fellowship with the Lord because this is our defense against such a great and evil and astute enemy. What can we do? James 4, 7. What can we do about the devil? James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. A lot of times when we talk about the spiritual warfare, we talk about just resist the devil. People miss the first part of that verse. You can't resist the devil successfully if you're not submitting yourself to God. You can't stand against the devil in your own personal strength or wit or willpower. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Those things go together, and that's our strength to stand as Christians. When we are, <clears throat> and he says it again in the next verse, draw near to God. I remember the story of a man who was taking a walk with his little girl. They're walking through the park, and his little girl didn't want to walk beside him. She was wandering off and into the grass and the flowers, and then she'd run back occasionally to him. And he kept calling her, Honey, come back, come back, walk over here, walk with Daddy. She didn't want to, and pretty soon here came a man walking down the, coming from the other direction. He had a great big black dog. As my daughter Emily would have said, today's her 35th birthday, by the way. She would have said, um, a great big black dog with glowing red eyes. She used to tell these stories to scare the rest of the children. You know, and they say, stop it, Emily. She's telling the black dog story again. But this man with this dog came walking down the... Pretty soon the little girl, she caught sight of that. She turned around and went right back and took Daddy's hand. <laughs> she didn't want to be away. When she saw the enemy, she, she thought that dog was going to eat her. 
So her way to get away from that was to get back to daddy and hold his hand. Remember this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When the devil wants to go after a Christian, which is always, one of the first things he does to get us into a position where he can deal with us and do what he wants to is he starts trying to get us away. He starts trying to cool us off. He starts trying to get us to lay off on the Bible reading and the prayer and the fellowship. He gets us out of fellowship. We start missing meetings. And, and it's a kind of a cumulative effect, you know. You start doing that, and then you lose more interest. And then you get further away. And then you get cooler. And you get separated from Christian fellowship. And he's waiting. He's waiting until you get far enough away to where he can gobble you up. And then he will. He will attack. And you might find yourself in situations that you never wished to be in and doing things that you swore you'd never do. You didn't draw near to God. That's the place where the devil can't go. That's the place where he can't operate in the presence of the Lord. And so in our desire and our struggle to live holy lives, to be holy for I am holy, you see what an important place Christian fellowship and personal devotional life, that reading of the scriptures, meditating on them, praying, staying close to the Lord and being sensitive to his will. These things are not just for our own personal benefit, they're for our protection. These are the ways the Lord protects us. He knows the wiles of the enemy, and he has prescribed to us the things that we need in order to be not only safe, but healthy as Christians. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Revelation 12, 11 tells us how they overcame these uh, people who were attacked by the devil over the long history of Christianity. They overcame him, 1211, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. There's three things. First of all, the blood of the Lamb. <clears throat> the devil can never have the ultimate final victory over a Christian because the Lord Jesus has already paid for us with his blood shed for us on the cross at Calvary. That's how we overcome. We don't overcome by... Uh, there are a lot of people who travel around the country in charismatic circles now teaching people all this prayer warfare and spiritual warfare and they hold hands and walk around the city of Miami uh, praying and singing songs and casting out the demons of vice in Miami. But guess what? It didn't work. Those people, in order to be rid of those vices... They need to be saved. That's what they need. The gospel is the answer for that. So when we talk about overcoming, we're talking about coming into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the overcomers, the people who have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and he's forgiven their sin, the blood of the Lamb. The second thing, the word of their testimony. This is another thing that is a power, a powerful tool that the Lord has given us or weapon that the Lord has given us as Christians. The word of your testimony. So what does the devil want you to do? Be quiet. Don't testify. Don't witness. Don't speak of Christ. The word of their testimony. 
And they, and they loved not their lives unto death. They weren't self-lovers. They were willing to lay everything on the line and be faithful even unto death to the Lord Jesus Christ. And their love for Christ and not for self. And their willingness to testify and witness for the Lord. And their faith in Him and the blood of the Lamb shed for them. These were the things that gave them the victory. And if we're paying attention as good students, then we'll take note of this. Because these things are necessary in our lives as well. This is what the Lord has given us to overcome this wicked enemy that we have. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Remember that. He's a powerful enemy, but you have somebody more powerful living in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's more powerful. And so if you feel threatened, if you feel fearful, you should remember 1 John 4, 4. Remind yourself of who lives in you and live for him. Matthew 4, when the Lord was tempted, we're not going to go and read all of that right now. It's a lesson in itself. The Lord allowed himself to be tempted by Satan. He came and he tried three different times to cause him to sin and to fall, and he was unable to do it. Now, the Lord could have kept him away, but he let him approach, and he let him present all of these temptations. And temptation is not sin. Temptation is the presenting of an opportunity to sin. It's what you do about it. It's how you respond to it. That's the key. It's impossible to avoid temptation in the world. Well, the devil came to him, and three times he tempted him. And every time, what did the Lord do? He said, it is written. It is written. It is written. He quoted the scripture to him. Well, that's what a lot of people couldn't do today because the only thing they know is, is the news and the sports scores. They're more informed about nearly anything else in the world than the Bible. Better informed about anything else. They don't read the scriptures. They don't meditate on them. They don't know what they say. They don't memorize them. And I really appreciate the fact that you have a Bible memory class here and that so many people are working on memorizing verses and portions of scripture. Because if you know the word of God, then you've got something to answer with when you face temptation. God has something to say about all the situations in life. And he might not mention, somebody said to me, well, he doesn't say you can't smoke. I said, you're right, he doesn't say you can't smoke. But he says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? So before you smoke, I want you to take that cigarette. Now, Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this cigarette. And for I want to smoke it for the glory of God and just praise you for every puff I take. And that's their reaction, you know, when I say that to them. And I say, oh, you, you can't do that? Well, God doesn't have to put a list and say, now you can do this, but not this. You can do this, but not this. And the fine print, you realize how many books it would take to do all of that? But he gives us the principles in his word. Some things that never change from age to age. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, they didn't have cigarettes back then. Some things don't change from age to age, and they're in the scriptures. But for the other things... There are the principles. You have to know the word of God. It is written. This is your answer to the devil. This is your answer to temptation. The scripture, the short sword of the Roman soldier, was a sword that was about 18 inches long. That was all. They were experts at it. They closed ranks with the enemies. They came in close. The enemies have got these huge long swords and halberds and spears 
what good is that fighting an enemy who's right up in your face? You can't get an angle to use it. And they'd move in close with this short sword and they'd finish them all. This is the short sword. When the devil closes ranks with you, when he gets up in your face, you pull it out and you say, it is written. It is written. Know your Bible. And if that means you have to turn off the tube, well, do it. If it means you have to unplug the computer, do it. Whatever it takes. But know your scriptures because this is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that we have been given. And this is our offensive weapon and defensive weapon in spiritual combat. Okay, that's the devil. We've got to move on because we've got to cover the other two. We have Sambalat, Tobiah, and Jeshem, the Arab. So we have the devil, and then we have what the devil uses, the world. The world. What is the world? Well, I've given you on um, previous occasions Mr. McDonald's definition. Does anyone remember it? He made us memorize it. That was <clears throat> 1980 when I had to memorize it. This is 2011. The world is a system designed and headed by the devil dedicated to the purpose of keeping mankind happy without God. The world is a system designed and headed by the devil dedicated to the purpose of keeping mankind happy without God. And it has its music, its philosophy, its religion, its politics, and so many things. Some legitimate, some not so much. But it has so many things that keep people occupied and with which people try to stay busy and happy and find satisfaction without God. This is the world. We're not talking about the planet. We're talking about the system, a system organized and headed by the devil, dedicated to the purpose of keeping mankind happy without God. These are the stewardesses and stewards on the airlines. You take your seat. The plane takes off, and pretty soon here they come down the aisle. Not so much anymore, but at least on international flights. <laughs> and, and they're giving you drinks and uh, chips or nuts, and then pretty soon they come and they serve dinner on international flights again. And uh, then pretty soon they put on a movie, and then pretty soon they come through with the duty-free things to sell that. And in, in between one thing and another, pretty soon you're landing. Their idea is to keep the passengers comfortable and entertained until you get to the destination. What do you think the devil's doing? What do you think the devil's doing? He uses the world. The world is his airline stewards and stewardesses. He's trying to keep everybody comfortable and entertained until he gets them where they're going. Don't think, don't worry about the engines and the pilot and the weather at the destination. Just watch the movie. Just put your seat back and go to sleep. We'll wake you up when you get there. Boy, will they ever. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. <clears throat> Love not the world. Now, this is not talking about mankind. Remember what we said. 
We're talking about the system. He's not saying don't love humanity, don't love other human beings. He's not talking about the planet, planet Earth. He's talking about the system. The system. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He's talking to us about being careful about this principal tool and ally of the devil. Sambalat had Tobias. So the devil has the world, and he uses it. The world is his display window. He, he puts all of his merchandise out in the window to, so the passersby will stop and examine it and desire it and come in and purchase it. This is what he wants. The world is his display window. The world is what he uses to attract us. It's like a magnet. It's like a, a strong current in a river. It exerts a force and pulls on people. People feel a tremendous desire to be like everyone else they see in the world around them. All the other people who are following the system of this world and enjoying the pleasures of this world. And we feel like we have to do that, be like them, and do what they're doing in order to be happy. We fall into the trap of the devil. This is what he wants. He wants to get people into his system, onto his playground, so he can deal with them on his terms. This is the world. We're warned in Colossians 2, verse 8, about the philosophies of this world that can spoil people. The world has its philosophy. These are things that spoil Christians. We're warned in James 4, 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, I can't make it much clearer than that. The world, because it, is, it was designed, built by Satan, and is run by him for the purpose of maintaining humanity happy without God, or keeping them happy without God, the world is the enemy of God. Okay. My friend's enemy is my enemy. This is what happens. So because they hate God and never forget, I think it was John Darby who said, never forget that the world put Jesus Christ on the cross. The world has already expressed its opinion of Jesus Christ. It rejected him, and crucified him. We will not have this man to rule over us. Said the Jews, and the Romans thought that was a great idea, and they were happy to take him out and crucify him. And that was the end of that, as far as they were concerned. So that's the world. The world wants our conformity. Romans 12, 1 and 2, but especially verse 2. So important, and coming back to what we said earlier about the job of a Christian woman to make sure the devil doesn't have a base of operations in her home. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Uh, I think it was Phillips. I'm not sure if it was the Amplified Bible or the Phillips translation that says, translates this verse this way. It's a paraphrase, but it says, Don't let the world around you press you into its mold. I thought that was so good. This is what the world wants to do. It wants to make everybody alike. Everybody have the same values. Everybody have, uh, they allow for some uh, minute variations, but generally the idea is to have everybody on the same page. This is what they want to do. Young people in particular feel, and some not so young, feel a tremendous pressure to be conformed to the world. They look at the world around them and they see how people dress and behave and what their values are, and they feel the magnetism of the world. They feel drawn to it. They feel it, uh, that it's necessary almost in order to be happy to be like that, to get into that mold. And this is why uh, people are so given to fads. You know, a fad will start some, and some of them are harmless. You know, it might be, um, I don't know, I can't think of any right now. There, well, there used to be this Cabbage Patch doll, but boy, that was back in grandmother's day. <clears throat> but they, I, some of you people remember that. Well, things like that, you know, they're, they're probably just harmless. But at any rate, they turned it into this thing up in Michigan. They said they put it in the paper as a joke that um, because there was a shortage and they wanted to get all the dolls there before Christmas, that they had contracted with the, with the, um, the factory over in Japan to bring them over in an airliner and to drop them out over the stadium to cut down the delivery time and so that if people would go to a certain stadium there and get their credit cards out and hold them up like that, the plane would fly over and drop the dolls out and then they would be able to take them home. Do you know people went to that stadium? I got the newspaper clipping at home somewhere in all my materials. It's incredible. Well, that's just an example of the extremes that people go to to fit into this mold that the world has. And some of those things might be just harmless and funny, but a lot of them are not. Don't give the devil a base of operations in your home. Teach your children that it's okay to be different because that word holy, be holy, for I am holy. The word holy means perfect, pure, and different. It has all of those meanings rolled up into one. It's okay to be different. God is not like us. Who is like unto thee? Perfect in holiness, it says in Exodus 15. Who is like unto thee? Perfect in holiness. And the word holiness there in Exodus is associated with that, that excellence and that purity that is different from what we see in the world around us down here. It's okay to be different. You don't have to be like them. Our joy and our calling should be to be as God wants us to be, not to be as Madison Avenue wants us to be. The people are so easy to manipulate. Just watch how the hymn lines go up and down. Let's watch how the clothing styles change, you know, and now it's narrow ties, and now it's wide ties, and, and if you could put it all on time-elapsed photography and speed it up, you would see things moving like this all the time, you know. They just keep changing it and making people buy, buy, buy. That's the idea, spin, spin. And who, who uh, my brother used to say, when my mother used to try to teach us etiquette, uh, she'd read to us Amy Vanderbilt's book about etiquette. 
three teenage boys growing up in North Carolina. We talk about Mission Impossible. My brother got up one day and walked off while she was reading. Not Ken, but our other brother, Ben. He got up and walked off one day. She said, where are you going? And he just threw over his shoulder, I'm not letting some fat lady in New York tell me how to live and tell me how to eat. That was it. You know, he just completely ruined my mother's day with that. But that's what we ought to say about the world. I'm not letting some nut in Madison Avenue tell me how to dress. I'm not going to let some, some person who's, a, who's one of these children of disobedience tell me how to live my life and what my values ought to be. God has given it to me here. I want to please him, don't I? Don't we say we love the Lord? Then we should be concerned about what pleases him. Let the world go its way, and it will, and we all know where that train is going to end up, don't we? So Proverbs 1.9 says, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not, which being translated into modern English means, when sinful people try to tempt you, just say no. Anybody here can't say the word No. Just say no. That's what we're supposed to do. Galatians 6.14 reminds us that as Christians, we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. There's a cross now between us and the world. And we need to remember that. We need to stop caring about what people in the world think, say, what their opinion is, and what they do. We need to just stop caring about that. Have you ever had a funeral? A good funeral for the world? The world is crucified to us. Have you ever reached that point and made that decision in your life that from this point on, forget it. I don't care what the world thinks or says or does. I'm following the Lord. James 1.27 says that we should keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Unspotted from the world. That's what they want to do. They want to put the spots on us. They want to stain us. They want to make us, they want to mark us like they're marked. And we're supposed to be very careful not to get into situations where that can happen. Finally, just two more minutes. The flesh. This is really in some ways the worst of all because it's in us. Not that you can really say one of these enemies is worse than the others, but this is the one we have the most trouble with probably because it's always with us. I'm going to be so glad when I get to heaven because it's not going to, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is I'm not going to have my flesh anymore. No more flesh. No more struggle. You know what the flesh is? When General Franco... During the Spanish Civil War, I, I think I told this story in a previous trip, but never mind, old people repeat themselves all the time. Uh, he had Madrid surrounded. He had uh, the four columns or divisions of his army out there surrounding Madrid. And uh, one of the newspaper reporters interviewing him asked him what his plan was for attacking and, and taking Madrid and ending the Civil War. And he said, well, I have my four columns out here and I have my fifth one in the city. That's where the word, that's where the term fifth column came from. It's Spanish. It came from Franco. I have my fifth one in the city. What did he mean by that? He meant he had sympathizers in the city. That when his forces attacked from the outside, the sympathizers who were inside the city would rise up and fight from the inside and turn the city over to him. You know what? 
That's what the flesh is. It's the fifth column. It's what's in us that sympathizes with the, the world and its temptations that the devil puts before us. It's what the devil finds to operate inside us with. The fifth column. It's the sympathizer, the enemy sympathizer. People used to worry back in the 50s and the 60s about communist sympathizers. And they hung people out to dry, some of them in the movie industry and other places, politicians. They used that, you know, wave the red flag and take people down. Maybe some of it was true and maybe some of it wasn't. We know some cases where it wasn't true. But at any rate, this is a problem. Sympathizing with the enemy. There's something in us that hasn't gone away just because we were saved. Just because we're saved, we still have the flesh. We have that battle in us until we're taken home to heaven. There is in us the old nature with its desires. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 gives us the works of the flesh. Go and read it and you'll see what kind of things the flesh produces. But in Ephesians where we started reading about our three enemies, we had it right there in Ephesians 2 verse 3 where he says, among whom we also had our conversation, that means manner of life, in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. The desires of our old nature, what we were in Adam, what we were by nature, all you are is flesh until you're born again. That's all you are until you're born again. And what did the Lord say to Nicodemus? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You can baptize it. You can dress it up. You can educate it. It doesn't matter what you do to it, but in the end, it's just flesh. It might be wet flesh. It might be well-dressed flesh. It might be religious flesh, but it's just flesh. Got to be born again. That's what he told Nicodemus. You must be born again. Because the new birth gives you we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It makes us new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And this is what we have to live for God is the new nature that he puts in us. We desire, and from there, the desires that we have for things we never desired before, things that please the Lord. From that new nature... We have these feelings of remorse and regret and shame when we do things that disappoint the Lord. That, those feelings are not a proof that you, that you never really got saved. They're probably a proof that you did. Because otherwise you would do the things you did before and you wouldn't have any pains of conscience about it. But now you have the Holy Spirit in you. And you have the new nature that loves righteousness. And these things go against a Christian who's sinning to bring him back to the Lord. The flesh, Romans 8, verse 7 says, is not subject to God, neither can it be. It doesn't submit. It's that part of our nature that wants to have, William Kelly used to say, is determined to have its way whether it pleases God or whether it be God's will or not. You know how many Christians have gone shipwrecked because they've given in to their flesh? They're determined to have their way and to do what they want whether it pleases God or not. That's the sure recipe for ruin and disaster. And who's manipulating that flesh that wants to do that? Who's, who knows about it? 
the enemy, the devil. Don't give him a base of operations in your house. Don't give him a base of operations in your person. Galatians 5.24 says, We who are Christ have crucified the flesh. We have crucified the flesh. Romans 6.11 reminds us that whole chapter 6 of Romans should be read and meditated in this context. Romans 6 reminds us Dead to sin, alive to God. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. It's how you think about it and how you respond. You respond to temptation like a dead person. A dead person that can't eat a candy bar. A dead person can't go anywhere. You respond that way. No, I died to this. And it would be a wonderful thing if some of us learned to celebrate our funeral. And maybe for some people to have one. And they've never really thought about it. Have you had a funeral? You realize what happened when you got saved? That was the end of all of that. So celebrate the end of it and don't go back over that ground. And Luke, finally, Luke 9, 23, the Lord says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. He's not talking about denying the devil here. He's talking about denying the fifth column that's in you. Deny yourself daily. And it doesn't mean to walk around with pebbles in your shoes to hurt your feet, to do penance and things like that. When he talks about denying self, he's talking about denying the flesh. Romans says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. This is our responsibility. You say, well, what are the desires of the flesh? I already told you, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. There they are. Make no provision for those things. Don't give them any place to operate. Think how important this is in our homes. And think what an impact, not only in your own personal life, but what an impact the walking in the light of these truths can have for those people that we're raising, that generation that we're hoping is going to rise up and go on for God and not go off into the world and into the flesh and end up in the hands of the devil being manipulated and ruined. Choose to cooperate with God. Commit your heart and your will to him. Draw near to him and submit to him. And trust in Christ to gain the victory by his blood at the cross of Calvary. And be holy as he who called you is holy. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, this morning for your word, and we thank you for speaking to us clearly about the conflicts that are before us in life. We know that we also have enemies who oppose us in the walk and the work that you have for us, and we pray that you would help us, Lord. And I pray, especially for my sisters this morning, that you would help them in their own personal lives, help each one, Lord, and help also in the raising of children, and grandchildren, we pray, Lord, for the effect that they can have for holiness on the generation that is growing up. We realize how important it is not to give the devil a base of operations in our lives, in our personal lives, or in our families. And we do pray that you will help us to be holy as he who called us is holy. We thank you for your loving kindness, for your patience, and your mercy, your long-suffering with us the many times we fail. 
But we do pray that you will help us to grow in holiness and live each day more for your honor and glory. And to please you, we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.